everyone, and welcome to the Tidewad Tech, episode 34, Virtualization in the Server Room, for February 17, 2011. This week, we're going to be rejoined by two special guests who've been with us before on prior podcasts. Uh, Rusty Miners from Eustace ISD and Jeremy Fluman from Winters ISD. And you may recognize those names. Uh, Jeremy was with us uh, to talk about desktop Linux. And uh, Rusty was with us to talk about Moodle. And so they're uh, going to be back with us uh, again later on in the show. And we'll uh, look forward to hearing from them. Uh, but before we go on, of course, we have to talk about useless drivel because that's what they're right there in the uh, show notes. So we have to do that. That's right. Our, our public have come to expect it. <laughs> Maybe. Our useless drivel. <laughs> uh, I will say we are recording this show uh, the week before TCEA, but it won't be released until the week after. So if you were tuning in expecting to hear us make some reference to it, if maybe you were a new listener we picked up there uh, at the conference uh, next week, we'll be talking about it probably because... That Even will be, a week further after. Right. <laughs> right. So there you go. That's the, the hazards of doing things asynchronously. But uh, because of the, the expected um, uh, busyness of the, that convention week, we wanted to go ahead and get this done a week ahead of time. Because, you know, not only are we going to be there for several days, but then when we come back, we'll have several days' worth of work to catch up on. Absolutely. Because we were there for several days. So uh, I'll go on with that. And Sean uh, is going to lead us off here oh, with okay. something he's titled Middle School Madness. Yeah, uh, well, I, it just, it, it's been occurring to me, and uh, as many of you probably know just from previous shows, is that I'm uh, spending my first uh, time in the classroom. I'm teaching three classes in the afternoon, and it's technology, so it's something that's very easy for me. It's, it's right up my alley. But... Uh, you know, I went into this thing with uh, such high hopes, right? Like thinking, you know, well, these young kids today, they they really know technology and they're so tech savvy. And uh, I think that's what we come to expect out of today's youth, right? That they know more about it than we do. And, uh, you know, not necessarily us, but, you know, certainly uh, our friends and people who aren't into technology every day, uh, they tend to think that about their kids. And uh, what I'm noticing here lately is that uh, I've been giving them way too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, sure, every kid's got a cell phone now and uh, they all uh, have a computer and get on a computer and things like that. But uh, I'm noticing some things that are kind of alarming to me. Uh, you know, these kids don't know how to how to Google properly. You know, they don't know how to, uh, you know, when you open a browser and you tell them, well, you know, find X, Y, Z they kind of give you this blank stare and then they'll, you know, in the title bar, they type X, Y, Z, you know, and, and they're not even quite sure where they're supposed to put their search term in. And, uh, it, it's kind of, like I said, it's just frightening. I, I, those are basic fundamentals that I thought, you know, every kid, you know, from probably fourth grade up would know. So, which is interesting. Cause if you're using Chrome or Firefox, there is no distinction between the title bar and the search bar. But I do right. find it interesting that not just uh, students, but adults, um, I will tell them, uh, go to www.disney.com. They'll go to the Google search box, type in www.disney.com. Right. The Google page comes up. That's the first link, and then they'll hit that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and same thing. I mean, uh, so many of these kids that, you know, we've got Google accounts for, and, you know, whether – not all teachers are going to use that tool, right? But I thought certainly uh, that these kids would know how to, like, compose an email. And I understand that email for them is passe, but uh, it, it still was pretty amazing just to watch them fumble through all of these tools and fumble through using a browser and, and doing a proper search. And even then when I ask them, well, uh, you know, we're, we're researching podcasts and do, I'm going to have them doing their own podcast. And, uh, you know, so I tell them, well, okay, what, you know, what is something that you like? You know, you got to do a show about something that you like and you know, you know, uh, skateboarding and, oh yeah, sure. I like skateboarding. Okay. Well, you know, just do a search on skateboarding podcasts and, and it, it's like, uh, or, you know, I'll say Google, you know, Google for a podcast that's interesting to you. And, uh, they'll just be like, uh, podcast that's interesting to me. And, <laughs> you know, they put that in the Google search. So, it, you know, I, I don't know. Um, or they would put too much, you know, and it's, you know, skateboarding in North America and, you know, and they'd put this long drawn out sentence and they, uh, so they, it was just amazing to see them, the lack of knowledge, I guess. So the moral of this story is teachers, we need you. 
Right. If you're a technical teacher, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a teacher, you are more needed than you realize. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, just showing them how to uh, upload a file or download a file and things like that. Uh, it was amazing. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that this isn't going on all across America, but it sure seems like it. And, you know, maybe it's because there's just there's not a test requirement for oh, it. Well, right. I don't mean, don't get me started. Please I, don't I, get me started. I know, but it's it's really sad. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I certainly don't want to put it on the teachers because they've got enough on their hands. But, um, you know, somewhere we need to start looking, relooking at our requirements. I mean, if kids can't properly use a browser and, and search for things, and uh, then uh, I just personally think we need to be taking a look at that all over again. This is some years ago, um, and so it's, it's, it's the person's not even uh, working anymore. They retired. Uh, but I was having a conversation with a principal, and we were talking about keyboarding, and I had uh, I was introducing a, 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 an open-source keyboarding tutorial that I had found. and said, look, you, let me put this on your computers in your lab. Uh, the kids will really like it, uh, and, and they'll, you know, they'll learn to type, and, and maybe you could require them to spend you know, a half hour a week on it or whatever. And the response was, we're not tested on that. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's another huge one for me is, I, you know, I'm watching these kids and now I know, you know, these are kids that have been in front of keyboards and computers really all their life at this point, right? I mean, uh, today's middle schooler has been around computers all their life and these kids are still hunting and pecking. And I'll, I'll give it to them. They like hunt and peck better than, you know, we would have when we were kids before we were introduced to this kind of stuff. Uh, but still, it's just amazing. And I keep picturing, you know, this workforce, you know, 20 years from now where people sit at desks and just, you know, are, are two finger typing, you know, right. uh, and how can we possibly do that to these kids? Uh, it just seems amazing to me. So that's my rant, uh, you know, middle school madness. And that's, that's it. It's not madness in a comical form. It's, it's madness in, as in what are we doing? Right. So, uh, so I'll leave, I'll leave my rant with that. And I'm really interested in yours. <laughs> on, uh, do on you some, want to give the title? On something, <laughs> I, I will get there on a, li- a bit lighter note. Um, for those of you who don't know Sean and I personally, Sean and me, per- yeah, Sean and me personally, um, we we bicker like an old married couple. We've known each other for about what ten years now, yeah. something like that. Yeah, and we've worked closely together every day for about three years now, and we've been doing this podcast uh, for you know several months. And and when we get together. <laughs> Um, we we are both uh, argumentative individuals, and and it's not the uh, uh, belligerent type. We, it's not the type of you know you will see my point, but it's no we the truth must be found out here, and and that's, yeah. I appreciate that about him, and I hope he does about me. Is when we do argue, it's not to prove who's right; it's to get to what is right. Yeah, I, I and, like the word debate better. Right, it's, it's, um, it's a spirited debate. But it sounds like it sounds like a bickering on a park bench from an old married couple sometimes. <laughs> right, and today I sort of stepped outside of myself and listening to our bickering and that's what it was um we were uh working on some a new facet to the show and hopefully by the time this airs you will have heard that in a couple of episodes now um we're introducing some some bump music within segments just just a little audio cue to let you know that we're moving from one segment to another uh it makes my job editing a little easier i don't have to make it sound so smooth and and conversational and it, it gives you that uh you know that uh that like I said, the audio cue, it gives you something to say, okay, we are now changing gears. So we'll move from this warm up here. You'll hear a little uh, music or sound effect cue, and then we'll move into the uh, interview, and then there'll be some music or sound effect cue, and then we'll move to the tips of the week. Radio shows and television shows do this all the time. You just don't even notice it. It's almost subliminal. So I spent uh, several an hour or so uh, working out something, uh, choosing uh, a selection, and and worked it out there. And I said, yeah, Sean, come in here and listen to this. Tell me what you think. And he played it. and He said, That's the gay. That sounds gay. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, what's what needs to be better? Just something less gay. Just do do something that. And so, uh, well, what do you mean? I, I need I need more information. And so this whole conversation went round and round about you know I'm not telling you. I disagree with you. I just need more input. Give me more. <laughs> yeah, input. you wanted more detail, right? And then, he, you know, finally he walked away with the instruction of some music not gay. And so there you go. <laughs> Something not gay is the title of this segment. And so I hope when you hear this, what the the bump that I've chosen doesn't sound gay. <laughs> there you go. And and uh, 
Uh, I'll apologize to any homosexual <laughs> listeners we might have. Uh, I, I'm not intending to offend anybody out there, but uh, maybe it's time to give out uh, Sean at the Taiwan Tech. That would be Sean, S H A W N, at the Taiwan Tech. And I think I'm going to go back into our new uh, Taiwan store and make some t shirts that say that on the back. There you go. Sean at the Taiwan they, Tech. They could be the best seller. Right. And so I will mention that, uh, again, we do have a a store, a cafe press store. If you're interested in wearing uh, our brand for whatever reason, uh, it's out there. Uh, just something I didn't mention previously. We don't make any money off of that. Those prices that you see on the store are the the prices that I pay uh, for setting up the store. I, I, this isn't an opportunity to make money. It's just uh, we want you to, to be our billboards for us. And so we're not going to charge you a fee for that. Uh, cafe press charges what they charge for their stuff, and I don't mark it up in any way. So that's all yeah. I mean, we wish it could be a little bit cheaper, and you know, we could do it cheaper if we could afford to do it on volume, but we can't. So right, those things you get. The thing about Cafe Press is they print it on demand, and there's no setup fees or whatever. And I looked at other things, and you've got to buy you know twenty five, fifty, a hundred shirts ahead of time, pay a setup fee, and and, and then you can get shirts for eight dollars a piece. Right, uh, but. It, it's $800 because you're buying 100 of them. Yeah. And so a Cafe Press didn't cost me anything. And then w- when you order the shirt or the hat or the mug or the whatever, uh, they print it up on demand. And so that's why their prices are a little more steep. And it's it's un- understandable for the for the service they provide. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Okay, so not keeping our guests waiting any longer. Uh, let's see, we've talked about madness and, and, and homosexuality, so I think uh, <laughs> uh, we're pretty well <laughs> All right. All right, so I introduced these guys uh, briefly uh, earlier in the show, uh, but I'll give them the opportunity to opportunity to uh, expand on that. So we'll we'll start with you, uh, Rusty. Talk a little bit just about your who you are and uh, and where you, what you do. Okay, Rusty Miners, uh, ostensibly network administrator at Eustis ISD Technology. Uh, actually, that position uh, most of the duties fall on another guy now and. Sometimes I just uh, frequently say that my position is technology slash other or slash everything. Uh, Everything from uh, helping with the uh, tech integration specialists, kind of being the tech integration specialist to the tech integration specialists, uh, but also uh, down on the screwdriver end of stuff. So uh, that's what I love about this job. Uh, Get to do everything. Been here going on eight years probably been doing virtualization for three to four off the top of my head all right jeremy same question oh jeremy fluman uh, technology director at winners isd um i mostly handle kind of the infrastructure and the networking uh i don't really do any of the technology integration with the teachers uh but i've been here about three years and then previously in higher ed um, so I, and I'd say I've been working with, uh, virtualization for about, about four, about four years. Okay. And, uh, so we'll just start with a softball, uh, between the two of you. What is virtualization? <laughs> softball, huh? <laughs> well, what I put in my notes, just, uh, jotting it down real quick, uh, putting all aspects of a machine, including the hardware inside of a software program. How's that for just off the top of my head? It doesn't sound like it was off the top of your head. It sounds like you were reading it. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jotted it down off the top of my head. Um, yeah, that's a pretty good description. You take, uh, the physical and you make it virtual. You, uh, um, one of the ways I uh, described it to people uh, is uh, like the calculator app on Windows um, is not a real calculator. It's a virtual calculator. There aren't real buttons, but you can do everything that you could do with a calculator, uh, including, you know, uh, have a readout and, and you've got the M plus and all that. So you, it, it's a virtual calculator. And so what uh, software computer virtualization does is exactly the same thing. It takes uh, something physical and makes it a piece of software. That sound about right. I like it. I'm going to remember that. Yep. There you go. Uh, see, we we deal with virtualized things all the time. We just don't really think of them as virtualized anymore. Uh, so, let me ask you this, Jeremy. I'll start with you. Um, okay. Make a case for virtualization. Why virtualize? Um, well, I know, like for us, 
it was just <laughs> for us we did it as kind of uh to kind of save some money on the servers instead of having instead of us having about 10 different servers for different things uh we just had the you know the one kind of beefy server that uh we were able to virtualize uh, everything too um and then with some of the back end storage stuff you, you know it's easier to do snapshots uh, and back up those vms um and then uh a lot easier to to bring one down and bring it back up you know i can move around on the hardware uh, it's like us we have right now we have like a cluster of four servers that uh you know we can move our vms in between if we wanted to so i can shut one server down do updates on it and then uh uh, you know, move the stuff back over to it and shut the other one down, do updates on it. And uh, um, just kind of on the management side, it's, it's been easier for us. Okay. Rusty, what about you? What was your reason for getting into virtualization? Well, the first reason was because it was fun. Uh, I've actually got testing down as the first reason on my notes, but uh, that kind of goes together. Being able to test uh, new operating systems or test an operating system that it's okay if you break it. Uh, so, you know, basically uh, having virtualization for for lab testing of uh, various uh various computers or servers or whatever. Then uh, the second reason I jotted down was consolidation, which uh, Jeremy touched upon. Uh, first thing we did, probably best I remember, was uh, took some of our older servers that were on some really old hardware and uh, didn't need a lot of power and started making them virtual uh, so uh, we could get rid of those boxes that were gonna fail sometime soon anyway. And uh, then my third reason was portability. So, uh, so when you do have a virtual server uh, and you need to put it on different hardware, it's a lot easier. And uh, so, you know, you have uh, a few very powerful uh, boxes and key locations. Uh, and if you decide to move a virtual machine to a different location, it's a lot easier because it is virtual. And then uh, Jeremy touched on uh, backups, uh, disaster recovery. Uh, I have to be honest and say that I haven't really set this up as well as I should yet. But uh, right from the get-go, it always seemed like the best way to be prepared prepared for disaster recovery is to have your, uh, at least, uh, you know, what you could have of your servers uh, to be in virtual form so that they were easy to back up and easy to uh, spin up a replacement. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you this. When, uh, how did you get your first start in using virtualization in general? I think, uh, I don't want to speak for you, but I think most people start on the desktop and then move it to the, de uh, to the server. Is that, uh, your experience? Okay. If you're asking Rusty, uh, not quite, but close enough, uh, uh, the uh, the VMware uh, products, the VMware free products, uh, I would assume is where a lot of people start. I'm pretty sure that's where you started. That's where I started uh, with the free server product. Now, uh, even though uh, we played with it on a desktop, uh, the the server, the VMware server product was um, at least the original one uh, was made to install only on a server. Uh, operating system on a on a Windows Server operating system, so we had to uh, we had to install that on a server. But then we had a console that we installed on our desktop, uh, so we could start playing with it. Right. What about you, Jeremy? How did you get into it first? Yeah. Well, when I started Angelo State, um, that's how they had started doing it. But when I came on, they were already to the point where uh, they were moving over to the I guess ESX. I don't know, it's three dot one maybe or something like that. But um, so when I got involved, you know, they had already gone through the playing with it on the desktop, and uh, um, then I went to VMware training. Uh, so I guess my start was actually on the on the server side of it. But that's just because, you know, that's where they were at at Angelo State. Um, and then when I came to Winners, uh, since I had already had experience at Angelo State with it, uh, we had bought a server that had VMware ESX on it. And uh, so we, you know, just started messing with it from there. Um, 
Okay. Yeah, but on my on my desktop, I run VirtualBox, so I play around with it on my desktop too. Uh, my first experience with virtualization was with a tool called Box, B-O-C-H-S. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but it's a, a, a an early. Uh, it was one of the very early uh, desktop versions, and it was it was uh, very difficult to work with. Um, uh, the new, the modern implementations really blow it away. Uh, but it was the uh, the idea of you take you know the standard x86 hardware the the motherboard processor ram all that sort of stuff and make it virtualized i started playing with that and um um and then later thought you know i could probably do some of this uh in the server room as well and so that's our focus today is is in the server room we'll do an episode uh later about uh, how to uh take advantage of virtualization on the desktop uh so let's talk about the tools that you use uh, uh, uh rusty already mentioned uh uh, VMware Server. That's what we use here, uh, where I work, and and uh, I, I can talk a little bit about why we chose that one later. But I wanted to ask you guys, uh, what are you using, and and why did you choose what it is that you chose? We'll start with you, Rusty. Okay. Well, um, from the we we did start doing some production on VMware Server that was installed on a Windows Server, uh, very light production, uh, very old uh, servers that, as I mentioned, had been on weak hardware. Uh, but then when we uh, started deciding uh, it was good enough to get serious with, um, we first assumed we would go with something like VMware uh, ESX, I believe it was called. Uh, uh, Jeremy mentioned that, but. Uh, um, but about that time, I, um, well, it wasn't free yet, uh, for one thing, and I really felt like I wanted to see if there was anything available that was uh, uh, better as far as uh, more efficient on the overhead, uh, just took less power to, uh, to virtualize the, uh, the hardware. And uh, so I started looking, I uh, believe, at Zen and almost decided to go with Zen. It was, uh, uh, there was some pretty good free options at the time. But um, uh, we, uh, we then got a line on a, a product called Proxmox. And the thing that was really attractive about Proxmox, which is what we're using now, uh, it is what we decided to go with when we uh, when we charged ahead on on full production uh, virtualization. Uh, uh, the first uh, first major server being our Moodle that we're still still running now. Anyway, the reason we went with Proxmox, the reason it was so attractive, is because it was a hybrid of two particular kinds of virtualization, both of which I wanted to uh, be able to leverage. Uh, uh, because, uh, and, and now I'm going to be tempted to back up a little bit and mention another kind of virtualization that I had uh, played with some before, and uh, that was uh, a, a product called Virtuoso. Uh, Virtuoso was a very expensive Windows program that uh, uh, basically lets uh, lets you partition the Windows operating system and, and instead of uh, virtualizing the hardware and using resources on that, uh, you just partition the system in such a way that the guest uh, operating system didn't know it was virtual, didn't know it was a guest, thought it had the machine all to itself. Um, but that, as I said, that was a very expensive uh, Windows program. Uh, I think they've changed names since then. I'm not sure what it's called now unless it's something like Parallels or something. Uh, but um, but there's a Linux version, uh, or there has been a Linux version of that all along that was free called OpenVZ. And uh, Proxmox uh, was a hybrid of OpenVZ and uh, full virtualization uh, of the uh, – oh, God, it's, it's, uh, it's escaping me at the moment uh, – which kind of Linux virtualization it uses. But anyway, with Proxmox, we can easily uh, create a fully virtual uh, virtualized machine, meaning that uh, all of the hardware is virtualized, or we can even easier – uh, create a new Linux machine that's actually just a partition of the host Linux machine that Proxmox is running on. All right, so let's uh, talk about that for just a little bit. Can you do both? Can you have uh, Windows machines uh, fully virtualized and Linux machines hyper-virtualized side-by-side? Exactly, and, and, and that's what we do. Uh, I, I can look... Uh, 
as I check my Proxmox list, uh, I've got, it looks like one, two, three, four, uh, looks like five host boxes running Proxmox. And as I glance at them, I believe every one of them has both some Linux machines and some Windows machines. Uh, yep, as I look at that, uh, I don't see an exception. All of them have some Windows machines that are fully virtualized and, and, and then some uh, that are just uh, uh, partitions of the Linux operating system. In fact, when you uh, look at the host on uh, Webmin, for example, or whatever way you're most familiar with uh, browsing the file system, you can actually browse from the host machine into the file systems on the child machines uh, that are in OpenVZ. But yes, they're both running uh, on the same host boxes. All right, so I just want to back up a little bit for the benefit of our listeners. We we sort of jumped into the eighth level Uber geek uh, status there. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, to describe my setup, uh, which is a very simple uh, setup, and 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 then we can talk about the differentiate differentiation from there. Uh, using VMware Server, I have a computer with an operating system installed on it. It could be Windows or or Linux. I'm using Linux, but it, it could be Windows. And, and it's just a regular uh, computer, in this case a very big, very fast uh, server computer, but still it's just a regular computer set up with uh, the usual uh, spate of, of uh, stuff on it, and, and it's got my operating system. Just like I would load Firefox browser or uh, OpenOffice uh, word processor on there, an application that's, that's no different than one of those running is the VMware server application. Okay, and so let, let's use the, the browser analogy. If I open Firefox, I can have multiple tabs within uh, Firefox, and each one of those can be on a different page. Well, inside my virtualization software, inside VMware Server, I have multiple virtualized computers. So uh, in my situation, there, there's overhead taken up by the operating system. I have uh, a very powerful server. Some of the, the power uh, is taken away by the fact that I have a full uh, installation of Linux installed on there. Then on top of that, I have my application running. And then on top of that, I have the virtualized computers. So there's several layers of abstraction between uh, the virtual computer and the real physical hardware. Uh, did that make sense, Sean? Did I explain that fairly well? Yeah, that's okay. That's that's about as close as you're going to get, Moderately or as far noob. away from eighth level Uber right. geek. <laughs> Moderately noob friendly there, right? Um, and so uh, there is a bit of a performance hit there. Um, the virtual machines are going to run more slowly than they will if they were regular physical machines, but. I have found that with the super modern processors that we have, uh, for example, the machine I've got has uh, 16 cores with 64 gigs of RAM. It's a big time uh, hoss of a machine. Um, the performance is fine. We don't notice a difference. Now, what Rusty's talking about is uh, where you actually use the processor and the hardware of the, the actual server to run stuff. And it just the 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 server uh, software, his Proxmox software, um, sort of puts blinders on it, so it's not aware of what else is going on. But it's communicating directly to the hardware, rather than having to go through an application, then through an operating system, then to the hardware. Is that right, Rusty? Did I get that right? That's yes. You're describing the OpenVZ side. Uh, no, uh, basically nothing lost to overhead. Whenever I run a, a Linux machine, a different flavor of Linux machine, or a different uh, purposed uh, Linux machine inside my Proxmox. And so, what makes your setup special is that you can have that plus the the virtualized environment as well. You get the best of both worlds there. Yes. Okay. Now, uh, Jeremy, let's talk about what you're using there at uh, Winters. Okay. Um, we can't, I think I mentioned earlier, we started off with uh, VMware ESX, and uh, we're kind of in the process of switching over to K just KVM-based uh, virtualization, mainly because the, the servers we're using for our virtual desktops are KVM-based, and I want to be able to utilize that. Um, and also... Just the, the management side of VMware, uh, as it is right now, I have to connect to a Windows box to run the uh, virtual infrastructure client to manage the VMware stuff, uh, whereas on the straight KVM-based ones, I can uh, use like Virtual Machine Manager and just manage it from my laptop. And you don't want any Windows in your life. <laughs> well, 
I just don't use Windows on my like on the machines I use. But yeah, yeah. I mean we have uh, you know we have some Windows servers and uh, some Linux servers, uh, both physical and virtualized. Um, okay, so what? But uh, right now, what Jeremy's talking about there is KVM is a piece of the Proxmox suite, right, Rusty? <laughs> Yes, I'm glad he threw out that name because it was slipping my mind a while ago. Uh, and as far as I know, Jeremy may have tried this. I know he was going to uh, look at uh, Proxmox a little bit. As far as I know, if you do decide to install Proxmox, uh, you can go back and use other KVM uh, management tools to manage that side of the Proxmox. Uh, now, I haven't done that myself, but I'm fairly sure you can do that. Okay, so with these tools, I say okay a lot. That's my standard transition. Yeah, okay. that's all right. I say okay a lot. Yeah. Okay. It's like, it's like a signature. Um, <laughs> so um, let's talk about the, the capabilities. Uh, Jeremy, you mentioned the management capabilities. Um, again, I, I think it's good here because we have sort of the three major players um, in the market uh, discounting Microsoft. They have a tool, but it's, in my opinion, not as mature as these other uh, products. I think they will get it right uh, in time, but they're not quite there yet. Um, so in my situation, using the free software, the, the absolutely no-cost version, um, there is very little in the way of management. One of the, the really cool features that VMware likes to tout is their, uh, I think they call it VMware Mover, where you can have multiple servers and you can take a virtual machine and just slip it from one machine to another. It, or if one machine goes down, the others just kind of move right over and you never notice anything. Now, the setup I have, that's not possible. Um, uh, because you have to pay for that. The free version, though, just runs on a single machine. Uh, can Proxmox do that, uh, Rusty? Can you move things from one place to another? To a certain extent, yes. And uh, honestly, I'm not up on, on where they are with that at the moment. But uh, those are features that Proxmox is working on adding. And as I mentioned, uh, if there are other KVM management tools uh, that will do that, they would work on Proxmox also because it is standard KVM. Proxmox is just kind of a, a web-based GUI that uh, that manages both the KVM and the OpenVZ, but it doesn't manage it exclusively. It will allow you to use other tools as far as I know. Uh, so I can do a little bit of that with Proxmox, or I could find another management tool to do it, but I haven't had the time to get there yet. All right, Jeremy, talk to me about VMware ESX. What, what, what can it do? Uh, well, on ours, uh, our VMware setup is just one server. Um, okay. But I know with the version, yeah, with the version we have, uh, if we wanted to do vMotion, uh, we'd have to pay the licensing on their uh, vCenter uh, software, um, plus licensing on another server. But uh, it would do the vMotion, you know, with the with the proper licensing in place, I guess. Okay, so that's that's the term vMotion. I, I had the, the, yeah, the yeah. word wrong. Um, so, uh, do you guys have any kind of redundancy built in? Um, uh, this is a quote I've used before on the show. You know, in the words of Mark Twain, I put all my eggs in one basket and watch that basket. I have, uh, you know, this, this really big, powerful server with redundant drives and redundant power supplies, and, and it's on different circuits and different UPSs. Um, so, I'm sort of living dangerously there. I don't have the V motion that will move things over. What I do have, however, is another machine exactly like it that every night makes a copy of of the first one. So theoretically, if one, if my primary one dies, I can just fire up the second one and, and be no more than 12 or 15 hours out. Um, what, how do you guys handle that? The redundancy or, or is, or are you just sunk if it goes down? <laughs> <laughs> well, as for Rusty, I'm going to, I'm going to plead a little ignorance and say that I've uh, delegated that to someone else. Um, but most likely, Mark, we're not as up on that as you are. But uh, but you're right. Uh, there there are other ways to do it without paying the expensive licensing. Uh, as far as I know, I know one of your favorite tools used to be Backup PC. As far as I know, you could uh, even use that on the file system in Proxmox. Which but, I do. Uh, I do both. Okay. There yeah. you go. Uh, the down the thing there though is there's downtime, and if you're a mission critical enterprise and you just can't afford downtime, that's where things like uh, vMotion, uh, the, the uh, rather punitive license fee, can be worth the money. Uh, because if you if you can't afford even a moment of downtime, uh, those tools offer you that. But I think most most uh, enterprises on a budget, as schools often are, uh, are willing to sacrifice a little downtime for a lot of money. Yep. Yeah, I think, have you looked uh -huh. at, uh, 
have you noticed, I guess on Zen server, there's a, I think it's called Project Remus, I guess, that um, it'll actually, uh, I guess, copy into memory the running VM so that if uh, one server goes down, that other VM is already actually running on another server and it just picks up where it left off. Wow, that's very cool. Which mm -hmm. So I wanted to kind of look into that. I haven't looked into that as much as I had planned on yet, but uh, I know with VMware, at least when I was at Angelo State with the older version, um, if one of your VMware servers went down, it would it would kick on on one of the other uh, servers in the cluster, but it'd be just as if you had unplugged the power and plugged it back in and turned it on. So so you lost whatever was running. Whereas right. on Zen with that with Remus, I guess it's called that. Uh, it makes it sound like you know it's only a few seconds and it does the switch over um, to a live running VM that's an exact copy of the other VM on another machine. That's uh, X E N Zen virtualization. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So let's. Uh, uh, see, there's the okay again. I really yeah. gotta, I gotta <laughs> work on that, man. Now that Hard I'm aware time. of it, I'm hearing it all the time. Um, yeah, Rusty, sorry, Mark. Uh, well, yeah, I just thought I'd mention before you move on that we've been talking about all these management programs that do wonderful things, uh, but the fact of the matter is that's where the p people who are giving us this free stuff that's where they're making their money. Absolutely. Uh, uh, so. Uh, VMware gives a lot of stuff away, and a lot of the other companies do, but it's the management tools. Uh, they, they've decided there's more money in the management tools, and that's why most of us don't have the thing, the, the programs that automatically uh, move stuff for us and automatically uh, spin up another one without skipping a beat. Right, and that's you're right. That's the money maker right there, and, and if I could afford it, I would have it, and I would be using it right now, um, but... Uh... It's not always an option. Well, that, that brings up uh, a, a noob question I'll throw out there uh, that I've been thinking along all along the way. I think he's kind of already answered it, but uh, are we talking about all free products here? Are these all free or, or uh, are you guys paying for parts of that or are you compelled to kind of pay for parts of it because it really doesn't do what you need it to? Um, in the case of Proxmox, uh, we're not paying for anything, and uh, actually, I don't believe Proxmox even has uh, some add-on tools that uh, they charge for. But uh, their model is to uh, make money on the support. If you if you want support from them, uh, you know you do have the free avenues through uh, through user forums, uh, quite a community there, but. Uh, but Proxmox, if you need a, a turnkey solution, uh, they'll provide it and they'll make their money there or uh, they can provide support for a fee. Okay, Jeremy? Yeah, well, on ours, uh, our VMware licensing came with the server. So okay. I guess we did actually pay for it then, but uh, the ESXi is their free version of that. And uh, as far as I know, like it, I mean, it pretty much does all the same stuff that you would need. Right, just without the fancy management stuff. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. that's how VMware has mm -hmm. positioned their stuff. They give their best stuff, they give their good stuff away, and make you pay for their best stuff. Um, yeah. So, I, uh, Jeremy, you said that you only have one virtual server. Um, what do, what percentage of your uh, total server backbone does that count for? How many how many of your servers are running off of that one physical machine? Uh. I think right now it's about 40%. Okay. So I think cuz we have about 24 servers. So um, you have so one 40, box doing 40% of your work essentially. Yeah, I mean the ones that are on there, they're not really heavy load servers, which really none of ours are, I guess, but uh but yeah, so yeah, 40% of our servers are running on there. Okay. Rusty, what about you? Uh, I I just threw out a figure that uh might be somewhere close to being accurate, 66%. Okay, so two thirds of your environment is is virtual. Roughly, I'd I'd say that's about right. Okay, here uh, we have uh, the one virtual server running. Gosh, I haven't even looked, Sean. Do you know fifteen or so? I was going to say that's about virtual right. Virtual machines, about 15. and then 
I can think offhand of about three physical machines. So we're probably at about 85 or 90%. We're, uh, it's, it's a basket we watch closely. Um, <laughs> uh, the things that, uh, and, and this was a question I'll, I'll throw to you as well, the things that we found don't work well in virtualized environments are things that require uh, uh, intensive or quick uh, data, hard drive access. Uh, for example, our primary file server that everybody puts their stuff on is not virtualized because when we tried that, it simply didn't have the performance uh, to do it. Our database servers um, uh, are not uh, virtualized for that reason. Um, what, have, what has your experience been with that? What are some things that are not suitable for virtualization, or more specifically, the things that aren't virtualized, why aren't they? That's a better question. Jeremy, you first. <laughs> okay, so for me, um, the stuff of ours that isn't virtualized is our uh, our – two uh, phone servers and then and then we also have our four virtual desktop servers which you know those won't be virtualized um okay. and then we have a physical domain controller that's not just so that we have a physical box um and then we have well, i don't know we're kind of mixed up where we have a couple of domains on our network that we're getting rid of and so some of those boxes actually go away so our our Percentage virtualized will go up once we clean up some some mess that we have. Okay, so your uh, your phone box because that requires specialized hardware. That's well, I, the um, the one we use doesn't require specialized hardware. Um, but they in the forums they say that uh, they recommend running on a physical box, and I don't know if that's just some of the software they have running or what, but uh, it you know. These phone servers run just on standard uh, servers. Okay. Um, so, yeah, because we have media gateways that are pulled away that actually plug into the phone systems. Right. So. All right, Rusty, how about you? Same question. Well, let me start with what we're not uh, virtualizing. Uh, that'll be Lily's. You're, as you mentioned, uh, database servers. Uh, we, uh, we don't have our Exchange server virtualized and our – our main web server is on the same box, so uh, they they would be exceptions. Our our main accounting program and RSCCC are not, at least not right now, virtualized. Uh, and the and some of the terminal services that are uh, involved in that are not virtualized. Virtualized, excuse me, virtualized. But uh, we do we have virtualized some uh, terminal services in the past, uh, and. Pardon me, I don't know if you can hear my phone, but I've got to shut that thing up. Um, <laughs> um, it wasn't Sean this week. <laughs> right. So, um, but uh, probably the the first and most important that is virtualized uh, is our Moodle server. Uh, we have a Kaltura CE media server that uh, uh, is is virtual. We, we have some other secondary web services that are virtual. Uh, our, our WSUS server is virtual. Uh, Windows uh, software update service or uh, well, anyway, the Windows update service. Uh, probably a good half or more of our network file shares are virtualized, but uh, but we've got them in several places distributed around uh, the campuses, and uh, we're also trying to make sure that they're uh, uh, that they're using uh, Windows DFS distributed file uh, <coughs> services, uh, trying to make sure that there's uh, redundant uh, copies and redundant places for people to actually access those. Uh, I mentioned Cultura CE. Uh, I think we've got some other media services virtualized, virtualized and we've got at least, uh, actually we've got uh, two uh, secondary uh, domain controllers virtualized. Uh, one of them may become the primary uh, uh, sometime in the near future. Just a quick plug. You mentioned Kaltura there. Uh, mm -hmm. We actually installed Kaltura after the last time you were on the show. Uh, you mm -hmm. were talking about it, and we set it up. And uh, coming up in the near future, we will have the lead developer on on our podcast of Kaltura CE. So that's an right. interesting uh, conversation. So if you don't know what that is that he just said, uh, stick around. We'll talk all about it in a, in a coming episode. Okay. 
All right, John, I've been hogging the mic here. Did you have any questions you wanted to put out there? No, I think, uh, yeah, because, you know, most of this is somewhat over my head, although, you know, I can get in and set up a, a VM and, uh, you know, do that kind of well, stuff. Let's but... talk about that from the new perspective. You did that for the first time uh, a week ago or so. Right. And I just kind of said, here's the interface, figure it out. Uh, what What was your experience with that? Um, it's really it's really simple. I mean, at least through uh, through VMware, I mean, it's it's fairly intuitive, so that wasn't a problem. And if you're, I mean, you know, uh, if you're used to just doing a basic server setup, it's a piece of cake because it's the same thing. I mean, you're not really doing anything different. Uh, I, I didn't count the clicks, but it's very few clicks to <laughs> actually get the VM in place. Um, and then from there, yeah, I mean, I had to, you had to point me in the right direction as far as where the image was uh, located so I could go ahead and get it installed. But, uh, or no, it wasn't an image, but the software, the, uh, right. uh, the installation media. So, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, VMware, I think, is awesome. VMware, I'll I'll jump in here for a moment. VMware is a good fallback uh, for a lot of their uh, utilities, their free utilities. Uh, I haven't used it in a good while, but anyone who, even a person who's not uh, considering uh, serious uh, migrations to virtual machines, might want to give a little thought to uh, some of the uh, some of the backup and disaster recovery potential in their free uh, P2V utilities. Uh, is that what they still call it, uh, P2V, or, or what do they call it now? I haven't used it lately. but I forget the name of it, but, yeah, it's uh, um, you, it basically makes a clone of an existing hardware in a virtual machine, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, it takes a while to do that, but it's, a, it is a, it's, a, it's the way we did a lot of our virtualization. We had a physical machine, and we set this thing on it, and I wish I could remember what it was called, uh, but it you know cranks overnight, and the next day you've got a virtualized copy of that same machine, and you had no downtime. And that, mm -hmm. So you're right, it's a great backup utility. Never thought about using it in that way, but it would be a good choice. And even when you're uh, using a totally different solution like uh, like I am with Proxmox, uh, uh, even the Proxmox wikis will tell you when it uh, when you need to copy a a physical machine uh, and create a virtual out of it. Uh, they, the instructions are going to tell you to go get uh, VMware's P2V program. Because most of the modern uh, tools will use VMware's uh, virtual disk format. They've been the one who's been around for the longest, and, and those that have come after have made themselves compatible with that format. So that's a, a good way to go. And I, I think it's like, there again, it's been a while since I've used it, but I think it's pretty compatible with, uh, with Ghost also. Uh, so you may be able to uh, uh, so, somehow uh, somehow mix the the ghost uh, backup formats with uh their p to p to v program uh jeremy have you ever done that no not with ghost um no i think we were going to try uh doing that one time but uh now nah, we we haven't done it yet i've done it with fog i've uploaded a physical image to fog and then downloaded that image to a virtual machine and it worked oh, perfectly nice okay so the main point is, uh, you know, there there is a way to mix various uh, various of those programs. It's surprising when you find out you can do it. Right, because again, the machine doesn't know it's not on a regular uh, piece of hardware, and mm -hmm. the software doesn't know. So uh, it, it you can do those things. You can do anything you can do uh, on a physical uh, box. Uh, yeah, pretty much anything. Uh, one of the things I like, I don't know about the tools you use, but uh, the VMware server, our server has uh, four different network cards. And so I can say this video, this machine gets this network card and this machine gets this network card. And so even though they're all on the same box, I can segregate traffic in that way. And so, for example, our Moodle machine, which takes a, a big network hit, is on a network card all by itself. And others share network cards and they share that traffic. Anyway, just a little, <laughs> a little cheerleading there. Yes, yeah, you can do that in uh, Proxmox too. I'm pretty sure, uh, but I, uh, I'm spread so thin. That's one thing I haven't got back to, but but always know I can eventually. <laughs> so uh, virtualization is a um, management tool, Jeremy. You've mentioned that it's it it's, uh, um, simplifies your management tasks. Uh, would you call it a money saving tool as well? Uh, again, we are the tightwad tech. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, I'd call it that. 
Yeah, I would agree. Um, I like because you know with VMware. Go ahead. I know on their, uh, you know on their, you can take a snapshot and then uh, we've used that before where if we're uh, doing an upgrade or installing something that we're not sure what's going to happen, we'll take a snapshot first and then do it. If it messes up, then we can roll back to the previous version. So instead of having to go through and fix everything you just broke, you just roll it back and uh, you know with the click of a button. That's another great. Um use case for virtualization. Uh, I've been tinkering a little bit with Moodle 2.0. And the way I did that was I made a, you know, a, a snapshot of my existing Moodle server, moved it over here, and I can break it and not mess up anybody else's Moodle experiment. And I have broken it uh, a number of <laughs> times. And when I get it right, then I'll just put that one in the in the live service. Well, not only that, uh, it's going to be virtualization is going to be extremely important when I get time to start messing with Moodle too, because uh, people are really worried uh, about that. And I've assured them uh, that first of all, I'm going to do like you said and ha and and just make a copy to break a few times. But uh, also, I've told them that we'll probably have two parallel Moodles for some time. So we'll probably have a Moodle 1.9 uh, running in parallel with a Moodle 2.0, and we'll take our time uh, moving over to 2.0. And if somebody's not comfortable with it yet, they'll be able to stay on Moodle 1.9 for a while. But all that can be done in the same box, or it could be done in different boxes. Absolutely. So what, if any, would you say are the pitfalls of virtualization? What are some things that can really bite you? I think like you mentioned, Mark, the uh, all your eggs in one basket. So if you have just the one, one server that's hosting virtual uh, machines, then if it goes down, so go all your VMs. Right. Okay. Anything else? Rusty? Uh <laughs> that's uh yeah getting overconfident about uh about the wonders of virtualization uh can can tend to make you uh uh really get ambitious uh but um uh honestly i, I can't uh, <laughs> can't think of anything else to add to it at the moment see one of the things that i've found that virtualization allows me to do is overuse my hardware uh if i have 16 gigs of ram in a machine I can set up 30 gigs of RAM in the virtual machines, and the machine will say, well, you're not using all of it. I'm going to allocate it over here. You need more. I'm going to give you more. And so you, you actually get more out of your resources in that way. But where it bit me was when I did that too much, and then suddenly the operating system didn't have enough memory to even run, and my machine went, <laughs> and... Um, so I learned <laughs> I learned the hard way that there are limits to to the magic that virtualization can work. Yeah, but by the same token, if you do uh generally have a rule that uh that you're going to be uh you're going to have overkill on your hardware, uh then somebody suddenly has a need uh that uh, that is more urgent than the financing for it uh it's easy to say, well, we can go ahead and implement that, uh, and you can pay later. You can, uh, we we could, if you don't have the money yet, as long as you understand that we're going to need to increase our capacity in a reasonable amount of time, we can go ahead and get that service going because we're going to virtualize it. Absolutely, that's a great thing. I've done that uh, a number of times. Hey, uh, uh, hey, Mark, I bought this software, paid a lot of money for it, and didn't mention it until now. Um, and we need a server to make this run on. Um, okay, give me ten minutes and fire one up. <laughs> right. As long as long as you buy me a box for it, sooner or later, uh, we can we can kind of squeeze it in there for a while. Okay. Anything else, Sean? No, that's good for me. Rusty, Jeremy, any uh, parting comments you'd like to, to put out there? Mm, doesn't come to mind. No, okay. I mean, just I'd, I'd recommend, you know, it doesn't take much of a box to just to play around with. If you have even just a probably just a spare desktop laying around, just to install one of these free free tools and just play around with it. So, so let me ask you this. I'll start with mine and give you a chance to think of yours. If you had one piece of advice to somebody who's never done any virtualization and they were just about to get into it, what would that one piece of advice be? And while you're thinking of yours, I'll tell you mine. Mine is buy two servers. 
um, for that the the fault fault tolerance that we talked about, and because you're going to do more than you think you will once you get into it. So uh, uh, just allocate that up front. I know we're talking about uh, saving money and tight budgets and all that sort of thing, but but overdo it. Buy two servers, buy two big servers, more powerful than you think you'll need. Uh, servers are relatively cheap these days. You can get a really good one for a few thousand dollars. So spend your money. Uh, the way I looked at it was, uh, I, I said, if I replace 10 machines, uh, 10 servers, what would the cost of those 10 servers be? And so I bought two machines that would have cost the aggregate of 10, uh, and I'm running 15 on them. So I still in, still saw a savings in that, and I have the redundancy. So there's my one piece of advice. Jeremy, what about you? I like yours. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rusty, you? Well, actually... Uh... Yours wasn't the first that came to mind, but uh, but I totally agree. Uh, I try to think in terms of only using 50% of the capacity. That way, I've got some margin to uh, to squeeze some other things in temporarily. Uh, but yeah, uh, overkill uh, on the hardware and uh, you know on the and the capacity. Uh, but someone who even has to ask this question, they need to just get in there and play with it, not think about production quite yet. Uh, and anyone can do that. If you've got a Windows server or a, or a Linux server that, uh, that has enough capacity to play, play a little bit on, then you need to get uh, the free VMware server that you can install on Windows or on Ubuntu, Linux, or something like that, and uh, find out what it's about and get familiar with the concepts and uh and uh if if it's for you you're gonna start getting ideas about what you can do with it uh quick enough but get in there and play with it first how much of a linux geek do you have to be to install proxmox and get it working uh you don't because uh the thing about proxmox uh and this actually puts some people off is it's not generally made to install on an already running Linux box, so uh, it's not it's not hard at all. But you do have to have a fairly good box to put it on. You you need 64-bit uh, hardware, uh, so you need something that's uh, fairly fairly powerful and and not too old. You know, uh, less than a couple of years old, uh, able to run 64-bit OS. There, you know, some people have hacked it to run 32-bit, but uh, you know, like I say, if you're asking my advice, you you don't even want to go there. Um, but um, but if you've got the box, uh, then uh, Proxmox, you download the ISO, you boot the CD, and uh, and you've got your host box going uh, in less than half an hour. Best I can remember. Okay, so it basically wants to be an appliance. Uh, yes, but on the other hand, after you've done it, you have uh, a real running Linux box. So if, if for some reason, and uh, the first one I do is uh, Webmin, if you want to install something on that host box that's not virtual, you can do that. You've got a real Linux machine running uh, as opposed to, I don't think you, I don't know if you can do that with uh, VMware ESX. Uh, when you do it with Proc Proxmox, if you want to install, if you want to put a desktop on that, uh, on that host server, you, you could, uh, I haven't done that, but uh, one thing I definitely do on all my Proxmox boxes, as soon as I've got it up and going, I come back and install Webmin uh, on it also not as a virtual and not in one of the containers but right on the host uh, operating system all right okay any other thoughts have you come up with a uh, uh, a bit of advice yet jeremy or are you just going to stick with with what you said um yeah i'll just stick with that i guess <laughs> <laughs> all right guys well uh it was a pleasure having you on again, and uh, um, once again, you've shown that you are uh, paragons of information. So we thank you for your time and for your willingness to uh, uh, to enlighten our Taiwan Tech audience once more. And so uh, it's been great, and we'll talk to you later. Okay, thank you for having me. Good talking with yeah, you guys. Thanks. Once again, that was Jeremy Fluman of Winters ISD and Rusty Miners of Eustis ISD, both here in the state of Texas. Uh, they've uh, 
They've been friends of the show. They've been friends of mine for a while now, and uh, we uh, are always happy to have them on. And, and they were two guys when we were uh, talking about doing this uh, topic that I knew would have uh, great things to say about it, and, and I was right. They did. Absolutely. I kind of felt like uh, Teller. <laughs> in that one that was just a little little above my head i mean you know i i know uh uh just uh you know surface level stuff about all of this but uh yeah i'm not the server room geek so <laughs> you were sort of doing your ed mcmahon there just sitting yeah, just every yes. now and then <laughs> yeah yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> just move down the couch every time a new guest yeah, that's comes right. ed mcmahon made a good living you know <laughs> so i will let you start with the teacher tip of the week, ah, since okay. you've been silent for so long. Good, good. I'll have to warm up my vocal cords. <laughs> uh, okay, teacher tip of the week, and this came from one of our listeners, uh, George, and I've I've heard it before. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say it's uh, Live Binders, and it's at livebinders.com, so just like it sounds. And uh, what this is is... Uh, he did it. What this is is... What this is is... Yeah. every I do it every time, don't I? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> like your okays okay <laughs> and so i say so a lot right right and i say right right a lot <laughs> <laughs> oh we're so entertaining so what uh, is it what is live binders? yes live binders uh I, the best way I can describe it is to picture it as a way to aggregate information from that you've discovered on the web and uh, you so aggregate it together and really package it and present it. Okay. So uh, uh, what you do in live binders, I don't, I don't know that you necessarily have to do this, but it has, uh, th they do offer a toolbar that you can install on your browser. And as you're browsing across the web, you can just say, add it to my live binder and uh, it, that site or that web 2.0 tool or whatever it is uh, will automatically be, uh, I don't want to say uploaded because it's not really uploaded, but really attached or uh, to your, to your binders. And you can have uh, all these various binders. Uh, the way I see it actually being kind of used in the classroom uh, is if a teacher puts kids on this, uh, some sort of project to uh, research something out on the web and uh, pull as much information about it together as they can. And the kids can uh, go, and with all the different sites they go to, they can uh, put them together into a single binder online that they can then turn around and share out to people, share to the teacher or to uh, their friends or whatever. So once you create your binder, you can then publish it through a URL? Essentially, yes. And uh, it, now I'll say one thing, and I, I, it was a little different than what I originally thought it was going to be, is that uh, I guess the thing I didn't really like about it, and I could be off base here, uh, you know, uh, I didn't sign up for one or do anything like that, but um, I didn't see any real way to, like, integrate or create your own content. Uh, so uh, again, it might have that functionality, but I didn't really see it readily available. So if that's the case, somebody please let me know, but, uh, just for what it is, or just for what I could see, uh, it was still pretty cool. So, uh, check it out. Livebinders.com. Live binders. I, I could see that as uh, being useful if you're doing a presentation at a, at a workshop or something and you want to, uh, collate all your links into one place. Uh, certainly, uh, Maybe do that, uh, as you said, the list of resources at the beginning of a, a school year or a semester and, and, and do that. And um, did you look to see if there was a possibility of having multiple contributors? Uh, you know what? I didn't check that, but I'm sure that I'm sure that there is. I mean, you know, uh, I didn't see the collaboration side of that, though. Okay. And, I, and I also thought that because I thought the presentation route was the same thing. Like if you're going to, let's say, TCEA and you're going to uh, do this presentation and so often you see these things where people are referring to different uh, websites and Web 2.0 tools. Uh, so I thought it would be great a great tool for that but then i didn't see where you could really like maybe interject a slide in between of your own content uh so i was missing that and you know again i didn't get real deep into it but it certainly wasn't just right out there where you could you can see that they had several different presentations that people had made and it, it essentially just looked like a, a, a coalition of websites just formatted really nicely and you know where it kind of made sense so okay. uh uh you know maybe i'm missing the boat there maybe some of our listeners especially since this came from one of our listeners who i know uses it uh can uh, can fill us in a little bit more on on some of those questions but uh definitely worth a look if you're uh you know in that right arena i guess definitely in the classroom i could see uh with uh 
I don't know, probably middle school and high school kids uh, would be using that. Okay. And so I can't uh, abuse you too much for not doing your homework because I haven't done my homework on, <laughs> on the one I'm doing. Uh, this is one that was uh, I ran into somewhere. I don't remember where. Uh, it's not really a tool that's going to fit in my everyday life, but it might in other people's. And it's called Synergy, S-Y-N-E-R-G-Y. And it allows you to share one keyboard and one mouse across multiple machines. Uh, now, the way I tend to do this is with VNC or some remote thing like that and bring that machine's uh, monitor into mine. But if you've got machines that have monitors up there but and you don't want to have keyboards and mice connected to them, you can set up Synergy and so you run a client on one and a server, like on your desktop would be the server, and then you run oh. different client ones and, and you just, as you move your mouse from left to right or top to bottom, it jumps to the whole other machine. Oh wow! So it's like like having multiple okay. monitors. We have multiple monitors here uh, on our desks, and and so as you slide from one monitor to the other, the keyboard and and mouse input follows you. Right. Well, this takes that paradigm to a whole other computer. So you just slide your slide your mouse over to the next uh, to the top or the to the bottom or to the left or the right, and it jumps over, and you're now controlling that computer. And uh, so the computer has to have a monitor or because uh, you can't see what you're doing otherwise. So, uh, But if you've got something like a projector, uh, a machine connected to a projector or something, uh, it could be useful. Um, is that is that uh, all on, like, does that have to all be on the same network? I mean, we're not talking about remoting in, like, uh, I could have my computer and my mom's computer. No, it, it, I mean? it, they have to be on the same LAN, okay. as okay. I understand it. Uh, and... Uh, it, it's cross-platform, so you can have a, a Linux box and a Windows box and a and a Mac uh, machine and run them all uh, from the same uh, keyboard and mouse. And uh, and it's an open source tool. It's uh, no cost, and uh, it, it looks really cool. Uh, I wish I had a cause to use it because it, it seems like something that that would be kind of fun to use. Right. But I don't really have uh, a use for it. The the thing for me is that you have to have the display. You have to be able to see the display on all the machines. Whereas when I do like a, a VNC, uh, I don't even need a display. I just have the window on my on my box. But uh, so there you go. Synergy um, as a tool out there that might be useful. All right. Great show. Great show. Okay. <laughs> Sean has said the two words. Now we can finish the show. We actually had a show last week where he forgot to say, "Yeah, great show." Yeah, I went ahead and yeah, I've been very mindful of that this That's week, right. so At I got to slip in. <laughs> so, Mark, I guess this would be the time that you could tell people how to contact us. Well, as always, you can visit our newly revamped Tightwad Tech website at thetightwadtech.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com/slash/thetightwadtech or Twitter at twitter.com/slash. Tech. And of course, if you want your dulcet tones, your own voice to be on our <laughs> podcast, you can leave us a voicemail at our, our uh, Google Voice number 530-FRUGAL2. Or if that's too difficult for you to remember, I've embedded a widget right there on our website. So you can go to our website, enter your name and phone number, and Google Voice will call you. <laughs> and you don't even need to know the number. Did when you set that up? I didn't even. I did that, that a few days ago. Okay. <laughs> so it's right there on the right hand side of the website. You just enter your phone number, and you don't even have to remember the number. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here and uh, admit my ignorance. Did you say dulcet? Dulcet, sweet. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. Dulcet. Yes. Okay. Dulcet uh, tones. I've never heard that word before. You've got such a great vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are we done? I think we're done. Okay. Thank you for joining us, folks. <laughs> and so for this week, this is Mark signing off. And Sean signing off.